Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the Be Unbound podcast. Uh, This is actually the season finale of season four that we are very excited for. I am your host, David Rethemeyer, joined as always by my co-host, Abraham Chen. Abe, what do we have in store for the finale of this season? We have a really good conversation. Uh, We are joined by Shane Morris of the Colson Center, as well as our president, Jonathan Brush, to sit down, talk about uh, really a variety of topics. You guys will be, uh, are in for a treat. We are talking about just the way education is going, so many different aspects of uh, of dealing with truth and, and how to face really a, a confusing world or a confusing um, educational world. So without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Shane, welcome on to the Be Unbound podcast. Thank you so much for making time for us. Um, real quick to all of you listening, uh, if you're an Unbounder, you are most likely going to recognize Shane from being a speaker at Apex Forge last year, 2021. But uh, Shane, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you do now, and what you're working on. Well, I've been working for the Colson Center for quite some time. It's been called the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. At one time, it was a division of prison fellowship started by Chuck Colson, of course, um, many decades ago. And we've been doing the breakpoint commentaries for um, just a long time, decades, 30-something years now. Uh, And of course, Chuck hosted that for the majority of its life. John Stone Street is now our president, and we've moved out accordingly to the uh, much cooler and more casual town of Colorado Springs. I do not live in Colorado Springs. I live in Florida, which is my, uh, my lifelong uh, residence. I was born and raised in the Tampa area. Um, my wife and I lived in DC for a bit, but the Colson Center has uh, has really been home for me for a good long while now. And I've worn a lot of hats there. I started as a, a kind of web producer guy doing graphics for the website, posting the the articles and audio and so forth. Um, I've done some photography, but the, the main thing that I settled into pretty quickly was writing and uh, eventually podcasting. And I've had the the privilege and honor to do a lot of that, especially in the writing front. My um, longtime editor, David Carlson, just retired last year, but he he was instrumental in kind of honing me in, a, in the direction of good writing. Uh, even as I finished college, I, I, I came on the team with the Colson Center as an intern. I went part-time until I finished school uh, and then got married and went full-time right about the same moment. So I wasn't wasting any time. This was in my early 20s. Um, but the Colson Center has been a, a heck of a lot of fun. I uh, have enjoyed, um, you know, speaking at some of the conferences, um, now hosting this podcast called Upstream, which has been the bulk of my time day to day for the last couple of years. This was the result of uh, John and 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 the whole team really wanting to branch out and create some more uh, some more niche specific products and programs other than just Breakpoint that could help uh, listeners get a lot more uh, depth and specificity on issues they cared about. So we started, we spun off two podcasts, Upstream, uh, which is mine, and it's uh, it's primarily focused on doing something Chuck Colson talked about, getting up uh, upstream from politics and the the hassle of daily culture into the um, the sources of ideas. We really want to figure out what is really sweeping us along from day to day without us understanding or knowing or comprehending it. We want to get to the sources of these ideas, really examine them, know them, understand them, and so that's very broad. Uh, you know, charter subject based. So we have a lot of different guests, scientists, 
um, uh, musicians, artists, philosophers, uh, filmmakers, actors. We've we've had pretty much everyone, and yeah, I've had conversations with a gay atheist psychologist, um, another atheist who's a historian. It's been it's been a ton of fun, but it's got a long way to go, um, and there's a lot more opportunity ahead of us. So, right now with Upstream, I have been branching out from just the the regular hour-long conversations with my guest to do some other things. So for the last year and some change, I, I've been doing these reflections where I will uh, go through and write a little bit more about the recent conversation and that turn that into a kind of spoken article. And then my producer, Wayne, has also joined me recently to do these further upstream conversations for half an hour where he just talks about what was... So, so recently, Shane, you had a philosopher on who talked about uh, the, you know, the being of God and natural revelation and so forth. Let's, let's figure out what all that was about and, to, and, you know, help listeners understand more. That's, uh, that's been a fun segment too. So I've talked long enough, um, but I love what I do. I'm very excited. And that is the, that's the sort of big picture of, of where I'm at with the Colson Center. Yeah. Thanks for that big picture. It's exciting to hear what you've done. And, um, I've listened to Breakpoints for years and years when Chuck was hosting it and then on through, uh, enjoyed when you were hosting Breakpoints this week. And, um, it's been fun to see you branch out with the, with the podcast and fun to meet you in person, uh, when you were at Apex last year. So, um, this question has a, you know, some bias in it and you're allowed to have bias if you admit it up front. And so I'm admitting it up front so we can allow it in the door here and get it in there. But uh, Shane, you have an educational background that actually mirrors uh, Unbounds and what we do, and, and Abe specifically. Uh, you were part of a, a predecessor program that became Unbound and did that for a couple of years, and then actually earned your degree through the process that very much looks like the way we help folks earn their degree today. And I said this question is prompted by the fact that um, yet you are doing something now which is very intellectual, uh, very much in the space of ideas, uh, very much in the space of, of writing and all those kinds of things you've talked about. And, and I think that's fascinating. It, it makes sense to me because of what I've experienced over the years. But I think for most people, they think you know, people that get into those kinds of jobs, they come from some sort of uh, really elite college and master's program and all these kinds of things. Um, I know you as as not just a, an articulate host, but a very good writer and thinker, as evidenced by your presentation at Apex and then just conversations. And, and, and I think the best sense of the word, an academic, but an academic meaning somebody who's very um, competent with ideas and able to discuss them and talk about them. So, you know, with that, obviously, we've got a little bias in asking this question, but tell us a little bit about how did your... Uh, you know, unorthodox education, which is the kind of education that we do, prepare you specifically for the kind of work that you do now? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jonathan. Um, so I was involved in the College Plus program, which is a sort of the predecessor of Unbound. Um, and the methodology, the, I think the core philosophy of the methodology is, is very much similar. It's that um, institutional education, as it's traditionally been done, uh, is in flux right now. And there are some new uh, opportunities and avenues opening up. And one of those has been this uh, extremely self-guided process, the ability to uh, to really chart your own course when it comes to education, set your own goals, and then do it affordably. The problem is that as, um, as, a, as a college education has become um, more and more of an ex expectation for like a base level um, uh, participation in the career world, it's also become prohib prohibitively expensive so that basically everyone ends up in debt at the end of the process. Um, and a lot of times they end up not getting a whole lot for their buck, you know, as 
the price of education has increased, the value of education from, I think, from an objective standpoint has decreased. It's become much more ideologically oriented, much less oriented towards making you uh, a whole person who can understand the world well and um, and live in it effectively. You've just become you know, an ideologue in many instances with our public institutions now. So I think a lot of, uh, I was homeschooled um, for most of the time, and then I sort of did this co-op thing through the rest of high school. And at that point, I started you know, taking uh, these club tests based on what I knew I would I would kind of need. And then I quickly got involved with College Plus um, right out of high school to help guide me toward this this degree with Thomas Edison State College, which um, now they're a state university. And they have been kind of at the cutting edge of uh, pioneering new ways of achieving your uh, undergrad education, right? It's very inexpensive. It's one of the accredited institutions that you can earn a degree from using a lot of, I know they don't do as much as they used to, but a lot of these um, CLEP tests, these sorts of things you can just read some books for, study for, and then take the um, the content-based test and pass or fail, right? You get the credit. And I liked that because I was very, uh, I was very self-directed without being super motivated to do things that I didn't like doing. Um, you, one thing you'll, you'll learn talking with my parents is that I was, uh, not at all interested in anything that, uh, I wasn't just intensely curious about and my intellectual energy for those things would have been very, very low. And obviously that's a person, that's a defect. Like that's something you have to discipline yourself out of and, and make yourself study what you have to study. And I think I've come a little ways since those days, um, in the direction of doing that well. But the fact that I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, quote unquote, uh, the fact that I was really interested and self-motivated in, in things that I wanted to study made the College Plus experience and then um, Thomas Edison State College and a humanities degree from there a, an ideal fit at the time. And I was I was pleased not just with what I was able to, you know, study, the fact that I was able to direct my own education and get some of the preliminaries out of the way very quickly, but in the freedom that that gave me. Because at the same time I'm doing this, I'm coming out of high school youth and government with the YMCA program. Um, I'm doing, uh, uh, I'm actually coming out of the NCFCA, which is the Homeschool Speech and Debate League nationally. Uh, and then I'm still going to tournaments and judging and, and so forth. If you, if you know anything about that, you know that uh, they always need judges. So I was doing a little bit of that, doing graduate advising with youth and government. And then I started doing these internships. So I went to DC um, and worked with the Leadership Institute for a while uh, in Arlington. And then I ended up at, at uh, Prison Fellowship Breakpoint, uh, which became the Colson Center, our branch of it also close to DC. And all this while I'm enrolled with first uh, with College Plus and then with uh, directly with Thomas Edison. And I'm able to set my own pace as I tackle these other projects. And eventually it's not the, I mean, the degree is, is a thing that it was a gate that I had to pass and I did learn a great deal. Um, but eventually it was the experience that that education allowed me to get in the process that got me a job. It wasn't the fact that I had this piece of paper and I could say, hey guys, look at my qualifications. I'm set apart from the rest. It wasn't that I had those qualifications. It was that I was in the office working um, alongside colleagues and actually cutting my teeth as a writer and so forth. That's what got me in. And that flexibility, I think, is a huge part. It's not the whole thing, obviously, you guys know, but it's a huge part of the selling value 
of um, this style of alternative education. So that was what you know that was what I got out of it, and why I'm still very grateful that I I did things the way I did. I hundred percent agree. I relate to um, the process being an inbound student myself where it really was the flexibility was being able to uh, work and, and intern while doing school that really made a difference. But I was, I'm just wondering as a question, was there a particular soft skill, as you just said, um, alongside the flexibility that you found was most useful, um, something that you picked up from all the different internships and experiences that you've continued to use to this day? Yeah, well, I think that I mean, actually the study habits that I gained in working toward club test and, and so forth. There, there were various other types. Um, but this habits of self-study, the ability to read through uh, a textbook or other material that was you know recommended in, in the study guides uh, as getting to the gist of an issue or a subject. And then and then knowing what's important as I read through that, knowing where the main points lie, knowing what the structure of the subject is, knowing um, what it is that a professor or the board who puts together a, a standardized test is going to expect you to know based on that was important for me. And I think that that skill um, and the ability to do that on my own without someone holding my hand was instrumental in um, learning to do a little bit of of journalism, learning to do opinion writing, and learning to do podcasting, because it enabled me to, you know, pick up a book like, uh, you know, like the half dozen I have stacked on my desk here for guests, and and read through it in a, a day or so, and then get to the gist of what the the um, writer is talking about, the point they're trying to make, and then when I have them on the podcast, I often get these remarks where they'll say, you know, Shane, I've been on a lot of podcasts, and and every host just sort of asks me these super elementary questions. And it's like, I have to educate them on the subject that they're supposed to be interviewing me about. But um, you already have got the gist of the book. You know what I'm talking about and the points I've made. And you can dig deeper now um, with me for your audience into the stuff that really matters. And that's, you know, I appreciate that. So I've had a, a lot of different guests say that. And I think that I owe that in no small part to the habits that were inculcated in me at, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, as I'm reading this stuff and get, and, 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 uh, getting ready to take tests for, and this is just like the pre preliminary part of my education, right? This is before I'm even taking real courses, semester long courses with Thomas Edison. Um, and that was valuable. It stuck with me. I, I love that so much just in terms of we talk all the time about the fact that, you know, education has shifted from an answers-based paradigm where it was really important the stuff that's in your head uh, to a questions-based paradigm, which is you certainly have to have things in your head. I mean, you have to be educated enough to have context. And so it, we're not in any way belittling the the need to put some stuff in your head. Um, but uh, critically in the world that we live in, it's going to be more about how do you ask the questions that allow you to take information that you have to gather and apply it to a problem that needs to be solved and with technology moving at the pace it is, you know, it disrupts everything. And so there's always going to be new problems to be solved. And unlike in previous years, there's unlikely to be people who know how to solve them because technology just disrupted them. You know, where in the past in an answers-based system, you know, these problems have been around for a while. They were experts. You listen to the experts. You put that stuff in your head and then you apply it to the same problem. Uh, now today, we, you know, we just have this kind of rapid change um, and you have to kind of do this problem-solving, rapid problem-solving. So... I love the fact that you're talking about in you know 
the world that you're in, the world of ideas, this is sort of the same thing. You're taking, you know, that set of skills and you're saying, hey, what is the what is the essence of this idea? I had the problem in front of me is I have to master this idea enough to be able to interview this guest in a way that my listeners can understand what's going on here. And, and I have to do that repeatedly again and again. And I think that that's true in, in your world, but I think that's true in almost any profession now, the way the world is kind of set up. Uh, so that's exciting to hear your perspective. I appreciate you sharing what you've learned and how you're applying that now. So turning a little bit towards... Um, what you do for the Colson Center and, and the folks that you interview, I, I think you've got a really interesting kind of front row seat on some big cultural ideas that are running through. And I'm fascinated by this idea and heavily influenced by, I think, you know, Colson and the Colson Center, Chuck Colson himself and the Colson Center saying this over the years, of this idea is that, you know, what is upstream where we are? Uh, you know, I think Chuck Colson said a lot that politics is downstream of culture. And so, I, you know, obviously your podcast is upstream. And so, you know, from a Christian worldview, we know the source, right? Upstream, get far enough upstream when you're talking about God, right? Creation and everything flows out from that. But I was curious as, as you know, I think one of the weaknesses of at least the North American church is that we're constantly in the flood, um, the church is constantly sort of, you know, watching the water come over the levees and going, oh my goodness, we're in a flood. And and they never really take the time or think about getting upstream to find out where the water's coming from. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask is, having sort of done this for a while and been on front row to see this, what are some of those springs that you see farther upstream? In other words, what do you see as some of the primary sources uh, that's kind of causing the flood. And, and, you know, floods are typically bad. I don't know that everything in culture is bad. I'm not saying that it's all horrible or something like that. But, you know, if you get upstream, what do you see upstream of the dam burst or what do you see upstream of the flood? Yeah, there are two, um, actually three really good books, um, two of them by the same author who have that have answered this question. And I've had both authors on upstream. One, of course, is Carl Truman, um, who wrote the the rise and triumph of the modern self? And then I just wrote a review uh, for the Gospel Coalition of his latest, which is kind of the Reader's Digest version of that, and it's called Strange New World. Um, and he answers this in a very similar way to the second author, who, whose name is Trevin Wax, and he uh, also writes for the Gospel Coalition. He's done his he's done his own thing for a while now, but he wrote a book called Rethink Yourself. And um, I had both of these guys on to talk about the themes of their book, and they're very similar subject matter. The claim they make is that one of the main head springs, if you will, of the current that, that sweeps us along from day to day in our culture is this idea of expressive individualism. Um, it's, a, it's a set of assumptions that shape what we think uh, the meaning of life is, the purpose of humanity, why we're here, why we work, why we play, why we do everything, that why we make movies and songs and, and, and have relationships and what makes us, um, what gives us our sexual and gender identity. It all comes back to this assumption that they identify that started probably with uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that in order to find the meaning of life, we must first look inside ourselves, figure out who we are internally, right? And then we look uh, to the world around us and seek to externalize that and make it known to everyone else and then demand recognition for that in every area. And then lastly, we can transcendentalize that. We can make it uh, part of what we believe about the universe. And so we can look up last uh, to to sort of get divine validation for that or supernatural validation. And that's that's specifically the pattern that, that Trevin Wax identifies, the in, around, up order of operations for understanding meaning. And I think that pattern has become so deeply 
entrenched in our imaginations in what what uh, Truman identifies using Charles Taylor's language as the social imaginary, as this set of assumptions that just sweeps us along and influences what we do and say and think and how we act and how we love and you know who we sleep with and stuff without us really even acknowledging it at any level or reading the the seminal thinkers of that. It just influences our lives involuntarily. That is at the source of our social imaginary, I think. This individual, this extreme individualism. And Truman's claim is that this works out eventually, if you do the math long enough, to the transgender movement, to, you know, saying that uh, I am so certain that reality is internally defined by my feelings that my body doesn't even define me anymore. What my physical form says about me is no longer ultimate or relevant. It's actually negotiable. And I think if you if you play that out across a whole different spectrum of issues, you will see that expressive individualism showing up again and again and again. So Trevin Wax proposes a, a, a different way of doing it. He flips that operation on its head. He says Christianity um, really teaches an up around in approach where we first understand who God is and the givenness of creation and the fact that he created us with a purpose and a and, and um, desires and, and a mission to fulfill, right? A commission. And then we look around us to understand the context into which he's placed us, the, the family, the, the nation, the community, the churches, every, everything that is given around us. And then we understand, lastly, our internal identity on the basis of those two things in that order, importantly. Um, that, I think, is the dominant cultural paradigm. And it, it really helps me understand a great deal of what's going on around us that otherwise would be super confusing. Like, why are these things connected? Well, what connects them is people think that their meaning comes ultimately from understanding their internal feelings and externalizing those and then demanding that everyone else recognize that. Christianity teaches something very different. And if you know that, if you see that head spring and know what it is and the, the, the you know kind of poison water that's flowing from it, you are now equipped to navigate culture in a way that you never could before. I think uh, I've listened to Carl Truman at, well, at the Woodforce weekend last year, and I've heard the interviews and a couple of interviews. I have his book. I haven't read it yet. Um, and so I think that that's a, a really astute and accurate depiction of, of what's going on with culture. There is a question there that I've been thinking about a lot recently and thinking about in the context of some things that we teach at Unbound. And that is so. So Trevin's uh, assessment, which is that you look up, around, and end, uh, I think is correct. However, it, there is a, a bit of a fatal flaw. I, th I think I see in that reasoning, which is the North American Church thinks that looking up means looking in. In, in other words, uh, evangelical Christianity thinks very much of a personal relationship with Christ, uh, which is defined by an individualistic association with Christ. And uh, one of the things I've been uh, thinking about recently is, is how to communicate a, a somewhat different idea. Um, uh, one of our staff members actually at Unbound, was, we had this conversation here recently. Uh, she lives in Zimbabwe and she had a, uh, she was talking about some folks who attended um, uh, Apex from a different perspective and were saying this, some of the things that were being said from stage Apex was hard to understand 
because they all presuppose this individualistic understanding of Christ rather than a community understanding of Christ, which is very culturally rooted to the point that some of the things being said on stage didn't actually make sense to the student because the cultural perspective was so different. Uh, she was unable to sort of perceive of a of a Christianity that wasn't defined by community. Uh, so I don't know if, if you want to elaborate on that a little bit, but I've been wrestling with this idea of what does it mean to actually understand God? I think evangelicalism has often said that's your personal relationship. And yet I think a biblical account that's more accurate would be actually your community defines that. But there's obviously some kind of interesting ground to tread on there. You know, does that mean that God is defined by the people around me? To some extent, yes. And, and how does that all work out? So I don't know if, if, if that train of thought makes sense and get your reaction to that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a really good question. One of the things that we've tried to emphasize, especially in the re the last year or two at the Colson Center, is um, seeing yourself as a member or character within God's story, instead of trying to make yourself the center of his story. So in other words, the, the Bible is written and Christianity came out of a very high context, uh, high community centric culture. Um, very much like what the, the staffer from Zimbabwe is describing. For most of human history, and Trevin Wax makes this point as well, for most of human history, people have been defined uh, vastly more by looking around them and understanding who they are in the context of their communities and their families and their ancestry and their nation and so forth than they have been by looking inward. That's why that's part of why Western expressive individualism is such a radical move. And, and we we just receive it in the water we swim in, right? It's we don't even feel wet because we're just in it all the time. But the reality is, historically speaking, this is a very new way of looking at the world and determining meaning. For most of history, Human beings have looked around first and foremost to figure out who they are. And in most of the world still to this day, that is how meaning is discerned to the point where, um, you know, Trevin says that th this way also can be uh, oppressive to people. This way also can crush people. And that's why he says we ultimately have to look to God first. But you're right, Jonathan, that um, I think the when we look up to God, we need to be very careful that we're not actually just looking in at ourselves again and characterizing God as just a bigger version of us or de or even deifying our feelings and saying, well, that's God. The, um, the story that's typically told in American evangelicalism about the world, and this was the subject of, of my talk at Apex Forge, is this very two-chapter story that, well, there was a fall. And we sinned, and now we need Jesus so we can go to heaven instead of hell. And there's not a false word in that statement. It's all true. The problem is it's incomplete. That's not the whole story. The whole story involves a chapter before that and a chapter after that. Before that, you've got the chapter of creation, the fact that God made things a certain way. He designed the world to be a certain way, to fulfill certain purposes and bring out certain glories. And, um, and we messed that up. We broke it by rebelling against the source of life and goodness. And so that's when you get into the fall. Um, but if you understand that we're living in a perversion of God's original design and that Jesus's redemption is in order to bring about that fourth chapter, which is restoration of all things, and that we're called to take part in that, then you get a much bigger picture. And it becomes a lot easier, I think, to live uh, within the story of God instead of bringing him into your story and making him a character. And you're right, that's a perennial temptation. Like the the desire to say, uh, it's the Jesus my, is my boyfriend 
attitude, right? It's the desire to say, well, I have some needs and Jesus is going to fulfill them. And a lot of, a lot of um, preaching and teaching plays on that theme that you have some needs and Jesus is going to fulfill them. But what if reality is actually defined by God and not by you and that you can pursue your the fulfillment of your deepest longings, but in understanding that you've got to understand, you've got to realize you're pursuing the design of the way God made the world and you, and you've got to live into that. And it's not negotiable. And that's okay because it's what you were made for. And you'll find, like C.S. Lewis says, you'll find ultimately that you are fulfilled in that. Um, but you do have to let God define the chapters <laughs> and the and the plot, not you. There's a an, an interesting kind of, you know, if if Satan trades on lies, there's, uh, you know, was it, it's attributed to Mark Twain, there's lies, damn lies and statistics. Uh, but in other words, there's different kinds of lies. And, and one of the ones that I think that I've been paying attention to a little bit more recently, there's a, an author, um, he also has a podcast, a guy named Andy Andrews. And he has a saying that is kind of one of the sort of makes you, it's a pattern interrupt. You have to sort of stop and think about it for a second. He said, just because something is true doesn't mean it's the truth. And, and I think, you know, we're touching on some things there that, you know, uh, it's true that you can have a personal relationship with Christ your Savior. Uh, that does not make it the truth. In other words, that is that is true. There is nothing untrue about that statement. And yet if you stop there, it is a form of a lie, not because it's not true, but because it's not the truth, that the truth is actually a, a you know bigger piece. And, and to what you were saying earlier about the uh, story, of, you know, there's a story that's true. It's not less than that, but in fact, it's more than that. But it's one of those things that if you stop at the less than, it in some ways becomes untrue because you miss the more than, which is actually the truth, the overarching truth. So. Right. I had a professor who said that uh, uh, um, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth is a lie. That's that's what most lies are. Right. And, and, and you know, quite deadly because you camp out there. In fact, one of the core things we talk, talked about earlier about Unbounds is really focused on it being a questions-based paradigm rather than an answers-based paradigm. And so one of our, our pillars of the, our educational framework is ask. And the idea there, and, and, and we have some trouble, especially with our students who come from Christian backgrounds, because they think at first they're a little bit allergic reaction. They think that we're some sort of closet relativist. You, you know, we say that. And so I often, I often state in our, in our you know, introductory navigate class, let me just start by saying I'm not a relativist. You know, I believe in ultimate truth. But I see so often in the church where we have this answers-based paradigm where somebody will camp out someplace and say, I now figured it out. And I just know in my own life that I'm extraordinarily tempted to that and that it seems like at an increasing pace as I get older, I get to a point and go, okay, everything, I, I, it was all true. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm working on truth and yet I'm just at the foot of the mountain and I get to the top of that mountain and go, well, that was all true. And I look and it's like, wow, there's six more mountain ranges beyond that. And they're all true also. And so in other words, uh, there's a danger, I think, especially in the church and in the faith where people get an answers based paradigm where they stop asking questions and they say, I know, I know what there is to know about Jesus. I know what to, there is to know about God. Um, and I think, you know, it, it appears to me <laughs> from my understanding of scripture that we have an entire eternity ahead of us where we're going to be continually learning about God and that's not going to be enough. And so that means that, you know, we probably need to continually ask those questions. Well, to loop back uh, to the original question a little bit, Shane, so I really appreciated uh, you talking about this expressive individualism. I'm curious. So you said that's the poison well from which the water comes. Um, but what is the source of the well? Like, I, you know, I'm not trying to play a philosophical question and keep pushing up, but, but, you know, I agree. I think that, uh, Carl Newport's, um, and Trevor Wax's assessment of the cultural, uh, situation makes a lot of sense. I think they've identified the flood and identified the source, 
Uh, but what is kind of generating the water, or maybe what's the pump, if we're trying to really strain the analogy here, what are the kind of systems of the institutions, from your perspective, that are pumping out this idea of the expressive individualism, which has now flooded the culture? Well, at the, at the root of it, Jonathan, is the fact that expressive individualism is enchanting. There's something about it that does um, seize the human spirit. It seizes our imagination. It's exciting. It is, there is a certain beauty to it. And I think that um, Truman in particular does an excellent job of um, moderating our response to this, of not saying, you know, I call that a poison well, and I think it's poison in the same way that a half-truth, uh, you know, a lie that is defined by its half-truthness is poison. But nevertheless, he acknowledges that expressive individualism is not all bad. The, um, the, the turn inward to recognize that especially in the West, that we have emotions, we have psychology, we have an inner life, we have inner feelings. Um, that is That can be a good thing. And in, at times it has been a good thing because it recognizes that the uh, dignity of the human race is not just a communal or corporate dignity, but it's an individual dignity. It is good that we are individuals and it is good that we have an inner life. And the West... Um, you know, beginning with probably Augustine. I mean, you could even take it back to to, to like um, the Apostle John and and so forth, because there are moments of introspection in the New Testament that are that are pretty s striking. But the um, but Augustine is one of the first thinkers post biblically to turn the eye inward and to try to figure out who am I deep down inside. And when he does that, what he finds there is a deep restlessness, because as a Manichaean, he wasn't being fulfilled. Um, in his deepest longings. And so he said, well, my heart is restless until I until it finds its rest in God who made it for himself. And that becomes a, a, a chief mark or distinction of Western thought since Augustine. Now, the problem is, as Truman says, is that Rousseau looks inward and he says, aha, I have found the answer to every moral question and every every question of meaning is right here in myself. And I define this and I define what's what's right and wrong and what's good and beautiful. And, and you know, if I decide that it's beautiful to dump my, you know, my four kids, I think it was four kids at an orphanage, um, probably to die an early death and then to go live my best life now, then that's fine. And that was it. he began to define truth for himself and um, and a whole series of thinkers after him. Um, you know, uh, psychologized that, sexualized it, and politicized it. And eventually we get to the point where we are today, according to, to Truman's analysis. But I think the answer to the question is really that there's something there that is good, and it got perverted. And um, especially as the, the moorings of Christianity were cut, and it became possible to, to try to invent your own meaning as an individual, that's when things really turned south. That's when they really started to fall apart. And it's like, exp it's exponential. You just go back 20 years and well, male, female are still strong concepts. It's just, we think that there's some people, um, you know, in a minority of society who, who have different desires than us. And so we think we're thinking maybe they should be allowed to have civil unions, right? Well, maybe they should be allowed to have marriage. Well, maybe, you know, marriage is not really that important. Maybe it's kind of negotiable. Maybe more than one, more than two people can be involved. And well, maybe male and female aren't really established concepts. So maybe children can get involved in this whole thing and they can, they can be sexualized and become transgender. And it just falls apart exponentially, all on this premise that meaning comes from within, not from without. It's not given. So yeah, I think it's, I think all of the real lies that have power over our imaginations 
are lies with a little grain of truth. And that grain of truth gets set up as the king over all other truth, and it negates everything else. And before we know it, we've become liars in every area of life except for that one little truth, and it's become a tyrant. I think it's that's the answer to the question, really. What strikes me really is how there is, like you said, Shane, this attraction, this uh, allurement to uh, this thinking. I do think in a way to our original sin as humans. So if you follow a biblical model, the the devil tempts Eve and Adam in the garden by saying like, you can't be God. There's this certain, um, you can find the answer in yourself kind of mentality. And so as believers, we would say that we the answer is God. It's kind of the cliched Sunday school answer. All right, the answer is Jesus. But um, what I'm hearing uh, which is very, uh, very cool, is saying that uh, as we look for answers, as we ask questions, one is to realize that um, the answer is in Christ. That is the most important thing. But then uh, we are uh, having the spirit, as we just discussed, how we have to always be an- open to learning more, to have a spirit to learn. Because once we say, aha, there is an answer, let's say, well, anywhere outside of God, outside of Christ, then that's where things uh, start going wrong. Do you think that would be a good summary of the idea? Well, yeah. And I recently had a guest on um, Dale Alquist, who was the president of the American Chesterton Society. And I just got into Chesterton for the first time reading Everlasting Man. So it was on my it was on my mind. But Chesterton is famous for saying, you, you you might be in danger of quoting Chesterton more than Lewis. Uh, yeah, I know this is your favorite thing. Is <laughs> I'm finding that because so. I'm about to quote Chesterton. You anticipated yeah. me. Um, it's uh, I think it's in um, Orthodoxy, which I've got on my desk here, and and I'm going to do a podcast on that, where he says that the only reason for uh, opening your mind, as with opening your mouth, is to close it again on something solid. Uh, otherwise. You know, you open your mind too much and everything just falls out. <laughs> and and that's that's really true. It summarizes well, I think, the, the uh, tension or the harmony that can appear like a paradox at first between curiosity and credenda, right? Dogma, things we need to believe, the truths that we have committed ourselves to. Uh, it's true that we always have to be curious and hungry and open-minded in that Chestertonian sense to understand more about the world in which God has placed us because this infinite, unfathomable God has created a very complicated world that is that takes a long time for our little pea brains to, uh, to, to comprehend. And we won't get to the end of it in this life. None of us will. So we have to be curious and, and, and open to ideas that we hadn't considered before, reconsidering some of our very easy, or as Jeff Myers calls them, unquestioned answers. But at the same time, we have these truths to which we're committed, these things to which we, of which we've been convinced and to which we need to hold fast, as the Apostle Paul says. And, um, and those are our mooring in this uh, otherwise sort of uh, um, landmarkless sea. And that is the place where we, where we have to live. And I'm not saying I've got it figured out or anyone on this discussion has it figured out. But I do know that if you commit yourself to certain uh, truths found in Christianity, you will find that the answers about the external world come to you much more quickly, naturally, and 
um, and easily. You know, there's this exciting rush of answers. The world, it's, the world unlocks itself and gives itself to you conceptually when you understand God as the foundation of it all. And I think this is what, uh, I think this is part of the motivating factor behind the, the whole Christian worldview movement is that when you see things biblically, you begin to, f- the world begins to make sense. When you try to f- see things without God, you're left adrift. You're left in a world that's very chaotic, frightening, and doesn't make much sense. And you have to, you're left to invent your own meaning in the midst of that world. And that's a very terrifying, depressing place to be. Um, I don't want to be in that place. I think that as one of my other guests, Stephen Meyer, talks about, science was inspired by the conviction that God created an orderly universe and created creatures with the kind of minds necessary to figure it out. (laughs) And he wanted us to figure it out. And that was literally the motivation behind the scientific revolution. He documents this exhaustively. That's, I think, the true for everything, not just science. We find the world we live in much more comprehensible and much more open to our curiosity when we realize that God created it. Otherwise, um, through any other set of presuppositions, it, it makes no sense, and it's very scary. It, I, I, I'm just really cautious here because I'm not sure that I, I was just thinking about this. It appears to me that oftentimes if somebody is uh, very atheistic in their approach, they tend to have a lot of depth in a particular subject. And I'm fascinated by some folks who have a lot of breadth and across a lot of subjects. And I was just thinking about that um, uh, with Chesterton and Lewis, uh, you know, I read Orthodoxy and, and Heretics uh, years ago. I think it's Heretics. Um, and I just was blown away. I was like, this dude, it sounds like he, le- he, he was alive last week. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's talking, he's talking about things that are so relevant now. Uh, but what's interesting about Lewis and, and Chesterton was that they write these really interesting theological, philosophical treatises that we're still uh, talking about today. And yet, uh, they're really both, both well-known for something totally different, which is their fiction, right? I mean, Narnia for Lewis and Father Brown for Chesterton. And, um, and, and it's just, that's a fascinating, uh, it just, it just came to me as you were saying that, that, you know, if you start with God, it unlocks and makes life make a lot of sense. And it was interesting that those particular two particular individuals, and there's lots of other examples, um, are able to apply that across a wide variety of different kinds of disciplines and come to insights and come to uh, create things and to teach things and to present things in a way that makes sense. Uh, I think that's kind of fascinating in terms of how it, it's a key that unlocks a lot of different doors. Jonathan, I think that's a, a lot of the reason why these alternative education models have cropped up, including Unbound, is that a lot of people are realizing, as Chesterton and Lewis knew, that it's much more important to learn how to think than to learn what to think. These are both men who very obviously, through their study, uh, you know, Chesterton, his experience was in journalism. Uh, Lewis's experience was in literature, specifically medieval literature. And through these these enterprises, both of these writers learned very richly how to think. They figured out how a logical process of thought flows, how themes interrelate, how um, how to draw a conclusion. You know, they're like Professor Kirk in in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's like, this is it's all in Plato. What do they teach in these schools? This is just basic logic. Look, if your sister has traditionally been the more honest between her and Edmund, well, you need to give her the benefit of the doubt instead of just dismissing what she says because it happens to be supernatural. <laughs> and he applies he applies the same thing to, uh, to, to the story of Jesus and to scripture. And I think um, to a number of different subjects and even 
when Lewis in particular, because I've read more of him, when he tackles a subject where he 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 prefaces it by saying, I am not trained formally in this subject, right? I never studied theology formally. He then goes on to give you one of the most lucid and profound theological tr- like treatises on a subject, like say divine simplicity and impassibility in miracles that you've ever read despite not being trained, simply because he knows how to think. And I believe and am convinced that learning how to do that, learning how to think, is has got to be our primary goal in education, not just filling kids' heads with facts. And that is the, I mean, that's the approach you described a moment ago, is, is um, this curiosity, this inculcation of a method for approaching the world and understanding the connectedness of everything rather than just studying for a test, rather than just studying for a piece of paper, right? You want to make the person an educated person, not give them a little stamp that says you've received an education. And that they can continue to learn. We call it QEMCI, which is quickly and effectively mastering complicated information. And I tell students all the time, whatever the subject is, your takeaway has to be, do you know how to learn? Do you know how to quickly and effectively well, I don't know if I can effectively uh, and quickly master that acronym. That was a lot of letters. What, what did you just say? <laughs> the, uh, quickly and effectively master complicated information. And we call it QEMCI because we talk about it so much, kind of ad nauseum. Uh, if you ask any of our students that, that, you know, we basically say, look, we don't care what your major is. We don't care what you're ultimately going to do, whether that's the trades or going on to earn your, earn your PhD or become an attorney. Uh, ultimately, the educational process, the transferable skill that will be absolutely essential is that one. Uh, you know, you may never use algebra again, but the the act of learning how to make your mind master algebra will be a transferable skill to be able to effectively master complicated information oh, yeah. in some other field. This may so. sound a little bit a little bit trippy and weird, but um, I am one of those people who hates math and have, has never. I, I hate math experientially. I don't hate it conceptually. I like the idea of math. I just don't like doing math, right? Um, and did but, you take sex and math as a yes, kid? Yes, I did. And that was, that was okay. part of it. <laughs> I, did, I did too. So I'm totally relating to everything you're saying here. Okay, so, okay great. Well, but the, what, what, I, what I mean by that is, um, you know, I see, the, I, I see the internal logic of it. And like you, I have not used a lot of that higher stuff since graduating from college. Nevertheless, I think there's something in there that shaped my mind in a particular direction, especially in algebra, and taught me to see how um, two facts that are related can imply a third fact, right? Uh, that that now becomes a mental habit that I apply to con- concepts and, and and ideas and words. And you'll find it works, right? Like the algebraic concepts are built into all of reality, even if you never use it on your day-to-day job. You, and you actually did better than me. Here's what I learned from algebra. I learned how to be humble enough to ask the people in my hall that knew algebra how to teach me. Right? You know, the transferable <laughs> right. skill for me was, I have, in order for me to graduate college, I'm going to pass this class. In order for me to do that, I'm going to have to be humble enough to go down and knock on the door and say, uh, dude, I know you're a math major and I'm not, and I really, really need your help. Um, so e- either, but 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 yeah, the idea being that this, that's the transferable piece. So, well, we could go for a long time, but Abe, we better hand it back to you so you can kind of put a bow <laughs> on it for us. Yes. Um uh, just amazing stuff. But Shane, so going back to our um, kind of discussion of, about students and whatnot, what is one thing you would say to, again, students, younger people who are trying to figure out this confusing, uh, as you as you said, this unmarked sea, trying to 
make their way upstream. There is a lot of different voices, a lot of different things to to understand and figure out. And again, they're asking questions, right, as they should. So what is one piece of advice that you would leave them, maybe something that you've learned through your process um, of growing? Well, I would return to that Augustinian insight that we talked about earlier, that ultimately um, there's a givenness to reality. Human beings were made to honor, love, and need God. Um, Lewis says that that we are like engines and God is the gas on which we are intended to run. And if we pour Gatorade in our gas tanks, we're not going to be happy. We're not going to thrive. We're not going to be human. At the end of the day, we're going to undo our own humanity. And I think we're living in a time when humanity is literally being undone. And the challenges that a student is going to face when he or she goes out there are going to be very um, deep challenges to you know, they're metaphysical challenges, to be quite honest. They're challenges to the being of reality, um, to what a male is, what a female is, what the purpose of life is, what um, whether whether basic things are good or bad, whether the family is a worthy pursuit, um, what the what the goal of your career should be, what justice looks like. All of these questions are going to confront students um, with a great moral fervor. And I think I would I would say, first of all, know that ultimately Truth will win because we are creatures who live in a world created by the one who is truth. And ultimately, we thirst for the things that God designed us to thirst for. And to the the extent to which we pervert ourselves and go after other things is going to be the extent to which we're unhappy, right? You put you put the wrong, you know, the wrong numbers into that equation at the top, it's going to come out with a really wrong answer at the bottom. So you go back to our earlier metaphor. That's that's how things are working out. So I would encourage students to say if and to to know in their heart of hearts, if you really have believed the truth, then um, it's going to have results in the real world. You are going to see thriving in your life because you've lived the truth in a way that is not true of those who are living into lies. It doesn't mean it's a prosperity gospel and everything's going to be hunky-dory, but it does mean that if you live along the grain of reality, if you believe and live what's true, you're going to find um, you're going to find human thriving. You're going to find that you are, your engine is running. The engines of those around you are not going to be running. So that's the first thing. The second thing, it, because I'm conscious of like how hard these, these challenges press in on us, how, how great the pressure to compromise is to say you believe in things you don't believe in or to stop saying what you believe um, about basic stuff in, especially in academia. Uh, you know, if you move on to like, to get an advanced degree somewhere, you're gonna you're gonna deal with this pressure. I would say understand that n- most of the people you meet who have a lot of moral fervor in the wrong direction have not arrived at that place through a process of intellectual investigation and and careful thought. They've arrived at that place through a process of absorbing the currents around them and feeling taking the you know emotional temperature of their culture and saying this is what I need to be really worked up about. But the moment you start to dig below the surface and you start to ask them some some pointed questions, you'll find that there's not a lot of substance behind that moral indignation. And you'll find that they can't answer some really basic questions. That's not to say once in a while you won't run across a really sharp atheist, right? But it is to say that most people who are antagonistic toward your beliefs are antagonistic because they felt their way to that point, not because they have thought their way to that point. And so stand your ground, keep a cool head, don't react, don't get triggered, and understand that you probably have thought a lot more about these questions than they have. Don't get cocky, but know 
that um, you don't you also don't have to get scared or intimidated by it, even if that person is in authority over you, even if that person is is your senior academically or you know in terms of age. And that's helped me navigate a lot of uh, a lot of challenging situations in the past. Well, thank you for those two. I was literally like taking notes here. Those are very good thoughts that um, really, I mean, students, but really anyone who is in this world working to to uh, understand the truth and to share the truth, the gospel needs to understand. So Shane, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, one last thing for 30 seconds. Is there anything that you are working on? Anything that you would like to shout out? Uh, what are ways that we can learn more about you and and find you? Well, simply stay tuned to Upstream. Um, ColsonCenter.org slash Upstream is going to be where you can you can keep track of that. You can also find my podcast on, uh, you know, Apple, Spotify, Libsyn, whatever service you use to get your podcasts. And um, we're going to be, I think, refining and developing and honing the podcast in the in the next few months, especially as we approach our annual Wilberforce weekend, which is taking place in Orlando this year. I'm going to be doing some live interviews there, which is something I did last year and really, really loved. So I'll be doing a few more of those. Um, but but up until now, Upstream has been very much uh, directed by what I happen to be reading at the time. Um, in the future, we're going to be directing Upstream in a much more intentional way, I think, that answers some of the big questions of our, our cultural moment and helps Christians to understand this the true shape of the story of the biblical worldview, of our faith. Um, and so that'll cash out in a lot of different areas. But if you listen to Upstream, I think you'll see the transition and you'll be able to follow all of the work I, you know, I do. This is going to be the core of my focus, even though you'll see my name on articles, breakpoints and, you know, book reviews and stuff elsewhere. Yeah. Well, Upstream has been a blessing. I very much look forward to these, this transition. Um, so once again, Jonathan, thank you for being on this conversation um, Shane, thank you so much for uh, your time and sharing your wisdom with us. Abraham, Jonathan, it's been great. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that was certainly a fantastic note to end the season on, Abe. Uh, Shane is always a treat to have a conversation with, and uh, yeah, I definitely feel like I learned a lot uh, just from being able to sit in on this conversation and uh, hear his perspective on uh, on culture and on how we as Christians can uh, can live and navigate in it. Hmm. David, and as we're closing out the season, uh, and to all of you listening, thank you for following us along on season four. But uh, as Shane said, that really <laughs> struck me personally of saying, hey, truth matters. Truth will have results. Again, as Shane said, not in a prosperity gospel way, but knowing that we serve the God of truth, we serve the one who orchestrates all things and that as we follow him, truth will have results. Um, it is a huge temptation. I know for my world personally, David, where uh, I, I know I'm influenced by the whole relativity kind of everything is relative. Um, we'll see what happens in the end. And it is a comfort and so encouraging to once again be reminded that we can be confident in our faith, in, in the truth, and that the truth will set us free in the end. And so if you want to learn more about the 
higher education program that Shane was talking about that uh, we all have talked about uh, in this episode, uh, what uh, Shane referred to as College Plus back in the day, what we now have as the Ascend program in Unbound, a higher education program that takes a very different approach, one that doesn't just stuff a bunch of information in your head, but as we talked about, really teaches the importance of learning how to learn. That's the most important thing in Ascend, a project-based higher education program for the purpose-driven young adult. So if you want to learn more about that, definitely check out the website beunbound.us slash ascend. Right along with that, uh, again, as we are closing out this season on the Be Unbound podcast, uh, there are many other resources that you can check out. There is uh, on the website, you will see uh, if you're a student or if you're considering the community, there's other uh, parts of the community from our online groups to the forums that you should totally check out. One I want to uh, very much highlight is our events coming up. We have Apex coming up. Um, in August. This is our national conference for all Unbound students, but also um, just guest speakers from all around and uh, really just a great time of encouragement if you want to uh, really see a lot of what we've talked about, especially in this past conversation come to life. That is where it is at. Also, we will have summer sessions, um, <laughs> a few episodes, if you will, coming out during the summer. Uh, as the name suggests, we will be taking a break from the main podcast. But yeah, look forward to just um, sessions here and there that are a bit more casual, a bit more behind the scenes. And uh, that will also be talking a bit more about Apex coming up. Absolutely. Stay tuned for those. But in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to the Be Unbound podcast. This has been season four. This has been David Rothemeyer and Abraham Chen signing off. As always, Be Unbound.